You know, most people who read the Christmas story, they usually read from Luke's version. Um, do you know why? That's the story that you'll hear at a Christmas pageant at a school or at a play. Uh, growing up, I always watched the Charlie Brown Christmas special, and it was even featured in that one. And, and here's the reason why, because Luke's version is very clean and tidy and neat. You've got this angelic choir, you've got the shepherds watching, keeping watch over their flock at night, and it's nice and neat and tidy and clean. There's a little bit of fear when the, the angels appear out of nowhere in the middle of the night. Uh, but Matthew's version, not so much. Matthew's version is, is pretty violent and bloody and gory. It's unsettling. It's disturbing. There's one king that's illegitimate, and he's going to get, he thinks, dethroned. And if we would have read a little bit longer uh, in that passage, we may re- revisit that at another Sunday in Advent. Um, children are slaughtered, two years old and younger. I mean, try to wrap your mind around that. It's pretty bloody and pretty gory and pretty violent. And here's the reason why, because God wants us to know that although Christmas is the most, I think, beautiful time of the year with the greatest message in the world, getting the Son of God on earth and putting His feet on the planet was a gory process. It cost God a lot. It cost people a lot. Not in the same sense that it did God, obviously, but it was, it was, not, it was not a smooth transition, I'll put it that way. And this, uh, this passage really highlights that. A new king was in town and not everyone wanted to welcome him, and people still don't want to welcome King Jesus. But like I said earlier, this is Advent, and the word Advent means the arrival of a notable person. That notable person has arrived, and his name is Jesus, and that's what the message is about this morning, and so we're going to have three points. We'll make it three quick, easy uh, points this morning to hang your, your thoughts on. Number one, Jesus is the king. I'm sorry if Elvis just rolled over in his grave. He's not a king. He's the king. That's point one. Point two is his arrival is troubling. And you see that highlighted all throughout this passage, and we'll look at that point too. And lastly, his arrival is also comforting, but some people never get to that point because the second point just knocks them off their feet and they're done. With the claims of Jesus Christ and the promises of Christianity, they just never get that far. So number one, um, point number one, Jesus is king. And you see that here if you look at the passage together. It says in verse 3, these wise men were saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? King of the Jews. Jesus is the king. He's the king by birth. He's the legitimate king. He didn't buy his position. He didn't manipulate and control his way. He didn't, uh, you know, have some people um, buried under a cement slab in a building somewhere, you know, like the mafia. Sometimes if, if you're a king and you have to disappear for another king to come, no, Jesus was, he was king by right, by birth, by pedigree. It was prophesied. And you can read those, gene- you wonder why the genealogies are in your Bible and Matthew uh, and Luke, and, and the reason is because God wants us to know that Jesus Christ had a legitimate claim to the throne. It's legitimate. He didn't bribe his way there. He belongs there. He is the true king of Israel. And this is, this is not a legend or a fable. I love the way that the Bible, the New Testament, starts out. It doesn't say once upon a time or in a kingdom far, far away or in a hole uh, in the ground under a mountain, you know, it's, it says this, look, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, there's a place, there's a person, Jesus, in the days of Herod the king. And this is the culture, this, this is what was going on during that time when he was born. And already trouble is introduced. Trouble is introduced. Herod's the king, but then another king is born and we got a problem on our hands. So it says that there were magi, that's the word in Greek, 
there were, were magi, and there were probably more than three. We get the, the number three just because there were three gifts, right? Myrrh, frankincense, and uh, gold. And so, but there were probably a, a big caravan of people from the Orient, from the East. And the reason we think that is because these magi were going around, and they were asking the whereabouts of, of him who was born king of the Jews. Okay, and that was a problem. The verb tense indicates... They're talking frequently, over and over, repeatedly to every person that they met. Where's the king? Where's the real king of the Jews at? And when that got back to Herod, that wasn't good at all. But these magi, people wonder, who were they? They could have been Babylonians. They could have been Persians. But they were probably scholars. They were probably uh, just a group of astrologers who studied the stars. They were pagans by all accounts, which is interesting to me because from the very get-go in Matthew's gospel account, um, Gentiles, pagans, pagans are seeking a king by the very life that God gave them. I know the Bible says there are none righteous, no, not one. But you know what? God has given natural revelation. And if we follow that natural revelation, it will take us to God, right? The problem is nobody's seeking him. But God did a supernatural work. He put a supernatural star in the sky. And he's leading this magi to seek this king uh, that was prophesied about ages ago. So they followed the light that God gave them, some kind of temporary supernatural star. And where did they go? They went to Jerusalem. Have you ever wondered why did they go to Jerusalem? Because that was the capital city of Israel. And they probably went to the palace because that's where a king's born, right? If you're looking for a king, you don't go to a manger. We get it. We're reading from the backside of the story, right? They didn't know that. They didn't know that Jesus was born amongst animals, right? At a dirty, unsanitized stable. They thought he would be born in the palace because he was the king. So that's where they went. Now notice, they weren't looking for a personal savior. That's not the language that they used here. And I love that the, the gospel of Matthew starts out that way. They were looking for a king, not an advisor, not a co-pilot, <laughs> not somebody to just solve all their guilt problems. No, they were looking for a ruler, Somebody who was sitting on a throne. You're a king. You sit on a throne. You hold a scepter. You have authority. You make decisions. You have followers. And that was a problem for a lot of people, and it still is today. They were looking for a true king, a new ruler, a true ruler, somebody that, listen to this, that they could worship. This, is a, this king is a big deal. This king's divine. He demands and requires our worship. And it's interesting to me that Matthew uses... You know, if you know anything about the four gospel accounts in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Matthew is all about Jesus is the king. Chapter one is all about his credentials, his pedigree, the genealogy, and Matthew chapter two is proof that he really is the legit king. And listen to me for a minute, okay, because a lot of people miss this. There are analogies in the Bible. You know, when God wrote the Bible, he knows that, number one, we love stories. We'll talk about that more in a little bit. Uh, God accommodates us. He stoops down. John Calvin said this, God speaks to us in the Bible like a nurse does to an infant with a, with a lisp. You know what that means? Come on, you're a good little baby. You ever talk to babies like that? Why? Because they can understand what you're saying, right? God does that to us. He stoops to us and speaks to us in a way we can understand. And he gives these, these metaphors. And there are figures in the Bible that are associated with Jesus like this. He's... Uh, Everlasting Father, right? That's one of the Christmas uh, descriptions of God. Why is that? Because we're children and, we're in, and we need direction, right? We need direction. We need stability. Um, he's also, the Bible says, a prophet. Well, why is that? A prophet brings instruction, word. 
You know, these figures are beautiful, but the implications are a little bit humbling. We need a father because we're directionless. We're aimless, right? Uh, we need a prophet. We need instruction because we're ignorant. <laughs> we need God to tell us who we are, who he is, and how we're to respond. Um, he's also a priest, the Bible says, right? What's a priest do? Oh, that's a beautiful, beautiful analogy. Well, a priest cleanses you. Why? Because you're sinful and dirty and stained. It's humbling, see? So he's a father. He's a prophet. He's a priest. He's a friend. Why? Jesus is a friend of sinners, because we're lonely, we're isolated, and we wither and languish all by ourselves. But I think the greatest and most humbling metaphor for Jesus is that he's king. He's king, and I love that, don't you? But the implications, again, are humbling. We need a king because we're unruly and we're rebellious. That's hard to swallow. A lot of people never get past that. They don't want a king. They want the little wiggling baby, baby in the manger to, to stay in the manger, not on the throne. Just, that's really cute. We have a, oh, it's cute. We have... We have a savior that's awesome, but we also have a king and we need one. We need one. God created us to have a king. Did you know that? Did you know that you and I were made for a king? It is so hardwired into our DNA. We will find a king and we will place him or her or it on a throne and we will serve that king. We will. We'll either find a flimsy pushover king or we'll put a tyrant in the place of that throne who will rule us and make demands that we can't fulfill and he can't forgive us when we fail him and will enslave us and imprison us and abuse us and use us and exploit us. We do it. Look at humanity. We were built and made for a king and we will find a king. And you know what? It's interesting to me. If you look at some of the most popular movies and literature, you see that. People deny it, but check this out. I was just doing a little uh, reflecting this week. Do you know why those were, you may not, recognize the one on the far left. That's one of my favorite movies, The Sword and the Stone. But you realize that's all about a king who had a legitimate claim to a throne. Uh, but when he left the throne and he was lost, all of the kingdom withered and languished and was sick and was dying until that king was back on his throne in his rightful place. And then the land thrived. Same thing with Lord of the Rings. There's this ranger, right? There's this king up in the north and he's got a rightful claim to the throne. And he's trying to make his way there. But until he does, there's rebellion, there's orcs, there's, there's blood, there's, there's a dark lord, there's manipulation. This little creature named Gollum that's loose wreaking havoc, right? We need that king back on the throne. And then King Richard uh, of Robin Hood. I don't know if you even know that story, but you can check that out sometime. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. The king has been... Uh, you know, there's been the manipulation and treachery, and so this king's not on his throne, and there's a tyrant in his place, and Robin Hood, you know, brings the true king back, and it's just amazing. All of these stories, and I could have listed 10 more. Why are they bestsellers? Why do they resonate with us? Because we get it. God gave us, when he revealed himself, he gave us a story, and that story, among other things, is all about a king who is coming to claim his throne and his kingdom. But listen, because we've had so many tyrants, that scares us. We think, yeah, I've been under leadership before. I've had a king, and no thank you, I'm not doing that again. But you know, Jesus, is, he's a different kind of king, one like one we've never had before. Um, I, uh, I was reading the lyrics in some worship songs this week, and I, I want you to hear these lyrics and just think of it this way, okay? This is, this is a worship song. The, the King of My Heart is the name of it. And I love the lyrics. It's from Bethel Music, and maybe you've heard it too. But as I'm reading this, these lyrics, I'm just thinking, it's not always Jesus who's meeting the requirements here. So you, you see for yourself. Let the king 
of my heart, be the mountain where I run, the fountain I drink from. Oh, he is my song. So what mountain do you run to? And what fountain are you drinking from? And what's your song? It's not always Jesus, is it? Even for, even for Christians, this is true. Let the king of my heart be the shadow where I hide, the ransom for my life. Oh, he is my song. What shadow are you hiding under? What's the shelter? What's the stability in your life? What are you looking to for meaning and for value and for worth and for hope? Because every single person in this room has a king in your life right now. It may not even be a person. It may be something like beauty or power. Whatever it is, uh, if you're running to that for shelter, you're hiding in that. That's, That's ruling you for good or for bad. Let the king of my heart be the wind inside my sails, the anchor in the waves. Oh, he is my song. And then the last lyric here. Let the king of my heart be the fire inside my veins, the echo of my days. Oh, he is my song. See, we will find a king and we will crown it. But so often, the king we pick is much too small for the throne in our heart. And what happens is is a dumpster fire happens. Our, Our lives get wrecked. Because only one king can, can fulfill the requirement that we have being image-bearing people of, the, of, of Jesus, and it's Jesus Christ. So listen, giving something in your life, kingly status, is very, very easy. We will, you drift there. You don't have to do anything. You're going to attach yourself to a king. It will happen. But dethroning that king, once he or she or it gets there, that's when things turn ugly and go south and, and blood gets shed and people get hurt. And marriages get ripped apart, and children get damaged, and it happens. David Foster Wallace, how many people recognize that name? He was an American novelist um, who shot himself in 2008. People have said he was possibly, possibly the most brilliant human being that the world has ever seen. And he was a teacher, and he gave commencement speeches, and he was an atheist, okay? But he, he said in a famous commencement speech to Kenyon College in 2005... He's got this famous, you should, should Google that later. It was too long to, I'm going to just highlight it for you. And he said this, there is no such thing as human beings not worshiping. It's really interesting when a smart person who's an atheist agrees with, with us, right? There's no such thing as a human being who doesn't worship. We are hard, you can't turn worship on and off. The switch is always on. It's just what do you choose to worship? That's the question. He said something like this, I'm paraphrasing. He says, and if you choose something to worship other than call it a God or something spiritual, he said, you better be careful because whatever you choose to worship will eat you alive. He says it will eat you alive. That's an atheist saying that. He says, if you worship beauty and sex, you're always going to feel ugly and inadequate. He said, if you worship intelligence and wisdom, you're always going to feel stupid. If you worship money and materialism, you're always going to feel broke. Man, I mean, you read that and you're like, <laughs> this is atheist saying what Christians have said for all this time. The issue is not do we worship or do we serve a king? It is what is that king? Many of you may not know who this is. He is a famous journalist from the New York Times who died of AIDS. Okay, He was gay and he died of AIDS. And this was back in 1993. Um, now there's a whole different culture of HIV and AIDS, but back then, hardly anybody was talking about it. And if you caught AIDS, you were all by yourself. Nobody wanted to talk to you or about you. You were just left to die alone. And he, he wrote a famous piece that was actually published 
three weeks after he passed away. And this was when Bill Clinton was elected president. I'm sorry if you can't see this. Let me read it for you. This is just some, some quotes from his article. Jeffrey Schmaltz is his name. I am getting sicker. Time is running out. AIDS has become normalized, part of the landscape. The world is moving on, uncaring, frustrated, and bored, leaving by the roadside those of us who are infected. But Bill Clinton came along. He insisted that people infected with the AIDS virus speak at the Democratic National Convention. On election night, he mentioned AIDS high in his victory speech. It all seems so promising. The man from Arkansas was to be not just president, but savior. He's not. Bogged down early on in a battle over homosexuals in the military, Clinton has grown wary of anything that the public might perceive as a gay issue. There was a time when it was thought that the solution to the AIDS crisis could be found in one omnipotent public figure. But he failed. Do you hear the king language there? Do you hear it? I had such hope. He spoke so eloquently on AIDS. I really did see him as a white knight who might save me. How naive I was to think that one man can make that big a difference. I felt alone, abandoned, cheated. And there you have it. One man just confessing. Yeah, yeah. I put a king on the throne of my life. He was my white knight. He was my savior. He was this one omnipotent figure that was going to rescue me and deliver me. And he failed. Right idea, bad king. Bad king. And listen, don't disconnect this. I've prayed this morning, every single person here, the Holy Spirit would help all of us to connect. What is it that's ruling in your heart that you're looking to for hope and meaning and power and deliverance? What is it? And do you see the failure there if it's not Jesus? We were made for a king, and we looked to him for hope. Have you ever played king of the hill? I did growing up. Man, it's hard to throw somebody off the top of a mountain. Actually, it's kind of easy. But you know what? If they're on a throne, and they're grabbing hold, and they're wearing a crown, and they have that scepter, and they've tasted the power, you're not getting them out of there. It's really, really difficult and violent and sometimes gory and messy to dethrone a king who you have put in power. That's what Jesus came to do. That's what Christmas is all about. Dethroning is painful. Uprooting an idol is bloody work because they don't go easily. And that's point number two. Point number two is this. Point one is Jesus is the king. Hallelujah. Amen. We love that. Point number two, his arrival is troubling. His arrival is troubling. It is. It is. And, and I would say this, if you have a legitimate testimony as a Christian, there would be a time when you look back in your past, maybe it's fuzzy, maybe you, you, you were young, but King Jesus, his claims on your life troubled you at one time. They're supposed to. It's how it works when you're under the reign and the authority and the rulership of a king. Check this out. Look at this passage here. Verse 2, they were saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. Verse 3, when Herod the king... You see how beautiful the language is here? When Herod, the king, heard this, he didn't like it. He was the king. There's only one king around here. There's only room in this town for one king, right? But look at this. He was troubled. He was troubled. Tarasso in Greek. You know what it means? It means to be violently shaken, to be mentally disturbed. It was used of water that was stirred up quickly. It was used... When people saw Jesus doing miracles and fell on their face in fear. It was used when angels appeared and people were frightened. Same word. He was shaken. Herod was troubled by this arrival of a new king. He didn't like it at all because of the implications. 
He was troubled, and check this out. This is the worst part. And all Jerusalem with him. Because when you have a ruler, and I'm going to talk about what Herod was actually like. When you have a ruler like Herod, and he's troubled, you should be troubled too. Because bad things are coming to you. As they did, you can imagine. I was trying to wrap my mind around how many children would have been slaughtered. You ever wondered that question? And scholars, they just can't agree. They're like, well, Bethlehem, there was only probably three or 400 people there, which I don't believe that. I believe there were a lot more. It was little, but not that little. So if there were two or 300 people there and there were this many parents, ah, maybe 20 kids died. But, but look, you've got to look at the scripture here. Um, in fact, I'm going to go ahead of where the passage we even looked at and, and read this. Let me see. Verse 16, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region. A lot of kids got slaughtered. A lot of, if you're a parent, try to wrap your mind around that. If you had three children, well, okay, two children who were under the age of two, and a soldier came and knocked on your door, they're gone. They're gone. That's the kind of king that Herod was. He was a murderer. He was psychotic. And it's really interesting to me, when you look at the history of the Gentile kings in the Old Testament and in the New, they're all paranoid. They're all psychotic. They're egomaniacs. They're, they're, they just live with suspicion and fear. And anyone that represents a threat to them, they disappear. They find themselves drowning in the Sea of Galilee or... You know, in modern day, they'd be under a, a hunk of cement in a slab somewhere, like Jimmy Hoffa, probably. You represent a threat to the king, you disappear. And Jesus represented a threat. But if you, knew, if you knew the history of Herod, number one, he wasn't even really a true Jew. Did you know that? He wasn't. He was half Jew and half, they, they would call it Idumean. He was a descendant of Esau. He tried to hide that fact, but he really couldn't. He wasn't even a legitimate king, uh, but Caesar had appointed him king because he was very clever. He ruled in the same way that all the other Caesars did, by control, fear, and manipulation. So Herod was put on the throne to rule over Palestine and that, and, and that region. Did you know he was married nine times? Nine times, not because he had a problem with lust, which I'm sure he did that too. If you read enough, you'll find that. Most of those kings were perverted. Um, but it was when you married, you were, you were strategically aligning yourself to be in a good political position, right? Nine times he married. His favorite wife, he slaughtered her. He had her killed, had her murdered. He even had her brother murdered. It's, it, I was reading this this week. It's really just to, to, to help you understand who this king is we're dealing with. He threw a, a party for his brother-in-law. It was like a swimming party uh, down by the river. And... He had talked to some of his buddies beforehand. And he said, look, get this guy out there, push him under, drown him, make it look like an accident. That's exactly what he did. And then at the funeral, he wept. He was actually shedding tears. So he killed his wife. He killed her brother. He killed three of his sons. I mean, this guy's a maniac. That's the kind of person that we're dealing with here. And he heard that there was a new king that was born legitimately. And he was troubled by that. He was troubled by that because he, listen, he was drunk with his own power, and he was paranoid. One historian called Herod a certified madman. Certified madman. It was even said that Caesar made this comment. He would rather be Herod's pig than his own son. The word pig and son are really close in Greek. But his most infamous act 
was, of course, slaughtering all those children. That would have, Herod's name after this would have been the same as when you hear Hitler. That's the kind of man that he was. Why? Because he felt like his king, uh, his, his kingdom was threatened and his authority was threatened. And that's what happens. And listen, if, if we're honest, doesn't everybody, you want to be in charge anyway, don't you? We do. You remember the song Tears for Fears saying, what was it back in the 80s and 90s? Everybody wants to rule the world. Why does, every, why does that resonate with everybody? Because we all want to rule the world, don't we? You remember Tom Petty? I, I heard this song over and over in my car growing up. You remember this song? It's good to be king. Have you ever listened to the lyrics of some of these songs? It's good to be king, if just for a while. To be there in velvet, yeah, to give them a smile. It's good to get high. This is Tom Petty, okay? It's good to get high and never come down. It's good to be king of your own little town. It's good to be king and have your own way. Get a feeling of peace at the end of the day. It's good to be king and have your own world. It helps to make friends. It's good to meet girls. Kind of weird lyric. A sweet little queen who can't run away. It's good to be king, whatever it pays. We can all resonate with that because it'd be good to be king of your own kingdom. But you weren't designed to be king. Jesus was. And when he arrives, it's troubling because somebody else all already occupies that throne, whether it's you or whether it's something that's taken that status in your life. And listen, uprooting that thing is painful and dangerous sometimes. It is. Because the thought of a king unsettles us. Here's what we think, okay? We think that this king has come to shake things up and wreck our lives. That's what we think. There's a new ruler in town. Things are never going to be the same again. You better get ready because this new king is powerful. He's demanding changes are going to happen. It's true. We think that way. How many of you have ever heard the name um, Rosaria Butterfield? I've mentioned her before. She wrote a book called The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely um, Convert. She was just about as far, politically speaking, she was about as far left-leaning as you can get. She was a, an activist. She was a lesbian. She was tenured at an Ivy League school, and she was a liberal professor that was teaching all these classes and one day she encountered a Christian pastor and they began this conversation. Two-year conversation. He had her in his house all the time. And she was converted. She was converted. But she had this lifestyle, right? That was in direct conflict and clashed with King Jesus coming and occupying the throne of her heart. And she wrote in that book about it. I just want to quote some of the things she says because it so fits with what I'm trying to tell you at this point. She says, How do I tell you about my conversion to Christianity? without making it sound like an alien abduction or a train wreck. Truth be told, it felt like a little of both. My former life still lurks in the edges of my heart, shiny and still like a knife. My past was my shrine, and any person or worldview that entered into my little world had to bow to it. You hear that king language here? I started reading my Bible. I read the way a glutton devours. I read it many times that first year in multiple translations, all the while fighting the idea that it was to be inspired by God. But the Bible overflowed into my world. I fought against it with all my might, with everything I had. But God's promises rolled in like sets of waves into my world. Then, one ordinary day, I came to Jesus, naked and open-handed. I prayed and I asked God if the gospel message was for someone like me too. I prayed that if Jesus was truly a real and risen God, that he would change my heart. I prayed that if my life was actually his life, that he would take it back and he would make it what he wanted it to be. I asked him to take it all 
my sexuality, my profession, my community, my taste, my books, and my tomorrows. Two worldviews clash together, she says. The reality of my lived experience and the truth of the Word of God. And then she said this, my feelings of lesbianism were familiar and comfortable and recognizable and I was reluctant to give them up. Don't you appreciate that kind of honesty? It's not like, oh, Jesus came and I was just like, yeah, take over. Everything was wonderful and now I'm happy all the day. Listen, that's not everybody's, that's not everybody's experience. Hers felt like an alien abduction and a train wreck because there were idols that had taken deep root and, and a hold on her life and they had to be uprooted. And she says, my feelings of lesbianism were familiar, comfortable, and recognizable, and I was reluctant to give them up. My journey out of lesbianism was messy and difficult. I spent a lot of time in prayer, and I still do. And you can get the book and read the rest if you want. It's all just as gripping and compelling as that small part that I quoted. But don't you appreciate her honesty? She recognizes it. She gets it. Jesus is a king, and he came to dethrone the one in your life, whoever or whatever that is. That's holding you captive. Because listen to me, guys. I'm telling you right now. I'm telling you right now. Jesus, the Bible says, came to set us free. That's what the Bible says. The Son has come to set you free. And if you're set free by the Son, you're free indeed. But listen to me. Before the Son sets you free, you've got to confess. You've got to confess the lie that's been holding you captive. Because listen, the lie we tend to believe the most and the easiest is the one that we tell ourselves, and it's this. If I can remain in control of my life, I'll be happy and fulfilled and satisfied and free. No, you won't. You'll be a prisoner. You will be a prisoner, and your life is going to be wrecked. And see, that's the issue. People say, well, Jesus is coming to wreck my life. Well, listen to me. Maybe the life you've been living needs to be wrecked. That's what happened with, with Rosaria Butterfield, right? Her life, she wasn't free at all. Her life wasn't free at all. I was in a Facebook conversation with a friend of mine just last year. And he's became, he was in the church that I shepherded him in. He was a college student. He went off to college. He came back, joined the military. Now he's just a rabid atheist. I mean, rabid. It's all his Facebook posts. Everything's about this atheism. Atheism, excuse me. So we were having a conversation. I'm asking him questions. And it was pretty civil. Pretty civil conversation. Um, and then he began to go into deep t- detail describing his life as an atheist. It's just interesting to me. This is, these are the things he said. He said things like, insanity is my blanket. There's so much pain and hate and violence. And this guy thinks he's free. <laughs> he's describing his life with him on his throne as an atheist. Insanity is my blanket. And there's pain and violence and hate and bitterness and grudges. And this guy really does believe that this is, this is man, that's a good life. No, it's not, man. But you see the lie? That's why the Bible says Satan blinds us to the glory of Christ. Part of that glory is the freedom that Jesus came to offer. But we're blinded to it. We're blinded to it. We don't want to give up our throne. It's king of the hill. And we belong here. No, you don't. You make a very poor king. And so does anything else that's not Jesus. But this guy said, my Christianity was narrow and restrictive and ridiculous and oppressive. That's what he said. I'm quoting He told me something like, there's so much more out there than this narrow belief of yours, which I replied, bro, you're not hearing me. I've been out there. I got saved when I was 22, man. I've already been out there, bro, and it's all lies, all of it. I know there's much more out there, but it turns out more is less. I'm freer than I've ever been in my life, and you can be too, or you can let insanity be your blanket, man, and try and sleep in that. That's a terrible way to live your life. 
One, con- one convert said this, I've never let go of anything in my life that didn't have claw marks on it. Is that, maybe that's your story too. Maybe that, that was my story. I was not willing to let go, man. There was claw marks on the throne that I was on because Jesus had to drag me off of it. <laughs> and praise God he did. Praise God he did. Jesus came to bring peace. But listen, he, there's war. There's war too. That's why it's so troubling when King Jesus comes to occupy the throne that he belongs on. You know, people say all the time, Jesus is my co-pilot. Well, then you're in the wrong chair. He didn't come to be your co-pilot. Jesus came to take control, you know, but we're so reluctant to give it up to him. We want that throne. We want that will, don't we? Herod didn't like people getting too close to his throne, and we don't either. It makes us uncomfortable. It's messy. But we got to pry our fingers off of those idols, and I know that that's terrifying, but listen, friends, it's liberating too because you've never met a king like this king. You've never met a king like this king. That truth is terrifying to people. Uh, John Stott said this, talking about his arrival is troubling. I know there's a lot of people that really do believe they're indifferent to Jesus. It's like, ah, you know, religion's okay for some people, but, you know, they're, but, but they're not understanding the message of Christianity. Um, listen to what John Stott said. He wrote this in a book. He's talking about indifference. He says, no one ever met Jesus and responded to him moderately. Nobody, ever. He said, there are only three things you, never, you ever see people doing when they meet Jesus. They either run in terror, assault with fury, or they prostrate themselves beneath him in utter surrender. In other words, nobody just liked Jesus, okay? Nobody did. Not even the people here who tell the... It's interesting to me. You know, the Magi come, the wise men, and they're like, where is he who was born king of the Jews? And the scribes are like, What? There's another king? No. You know what they said? Herod gathered them. They're like, yeah, yeah, go down a road here, five miles, take a left, second house on the right, you'll find him there. What in the world? They they had all these prophecies memorized. They knew exactly where the Messiah was going to be born. But to them, he wasn't a threat yet. They seem to be indifferent, but they're not. Just wait. Just wait. Read the rest of the story in Matthew's gospel. They're going to be crying for his blood in about 24 chapters. You remember? He wasn't a threat to them yet. He was just in a manger, right? He's going to grow up and he's going to be on a throne and that's when they get murderous. Nobody ever just liked Jesus. And that's my fear in America today is that people tend to be just so indifferent to Jesus. And I think preachers may be doing a poor job of explaining who he is and the claims he came to make on your life. I'm serious. I'm serious. Jesus is king. He's the only legitimate king you'll ever have. And he, amen, sister, thank you. Thank you, both of you. <laughs> he came to pry your fingers. You remember, who was it? Was it Charlton Heston that was talking to Al Gore? And he said, look, you can have my guns as soon as you can come and pry, <laughs> pry my cold, dead fingers off of them. I think that's how most of us feel when it comes to the control of our life. It's like, Jesus, you can have control of my life when you peel my cold, dead fingers off of them. That's the way Herod felt about that. But listen, there's, there's a good ending to this. Man, did I stop my clock? Uh-oh, that's not good. I have no idea how long I've been preaching. <laughs> no, last point here, okay? Last point is this. First point was Jesus is the king. Second point is his arrival is troubling. But the third point and the most beautiful point is this. His arrival is comforting too. Like I told you, you've never met a king quite like this. Check this out. Look in verse 6. And the scribes and the Pharisees should have known better. 
They should have known better because look at the prophecy, verse 6. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Anything stand out to you as odd in that? From you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people. Do you see the, the contradiction almost? A ruler who's a shepherd. A king who's a shepherd. There's a, that doesn't, it doesn't work, guys. In that time period especially, king, shepherd. That's like um, boneless ribs, okay? That's like Microsoft works or like jumbo shrimp. Those things don't go together. They're mutually exclusive in people's minds. No king is a shepherd, okay? No king has a, a, a shepherd's crook. He has a scepter, okay? He's ruling. But like I told you, you've never met a king like this who actually cares about his subjects. He's empathetic. He's compassionate. He's kind. He's loving. He's gentle. He's tender. He's understanding. I mean, he would go all the way to the cross. He would lay down his life for his sheep. It's interesting to me. John 10, 10. Everyone knows that verse probably. When I quote it, you will. Uh, I have come so that they may have life more abundantly. And then right after that, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That's what a good shepherd does. This is a king like no king you've ever seen. See, usually kings come to take. They come to take. This king came to give. Kings usually come to destroy. This king came to bring life. No other king in the history of the world was ever like this. That's why it was so hard for this message to land uh, with a receptive audience because people hear king and they think, no, thank you. We've been there. We've done that. We've had all these tyrants that have came to rule us and use us and abuse us and exploit us and we're finished. We're done. No, thank you. Throne is occupied. No vacancy. And so that's why the Bible goes to such great lengths to describe Jesus in all these ways. He's a prophet. He's a priest. He's a king, but he's a shepherd king. He's a shepherd king. He came to rule. In fact, he was in his throne in heaven of glory and, and in an unspeakable act of condescension. He left his lofty throne, took off his crown, metaphorically speaking, and became a servant. You know, we're going to pick back up this next year going through the Gospel of Mark. And Mark has a lot of, not contradictions in the way that a liberal scholar might tell you. There's just all these things that seem to be a, a paradox. Because Matthew, uh, Mark's Gospel says Jesus is the king. But it says, he, he, he says he's the ruler, but he's the ruler who serves. I can promise you nobody ever saw a ruler at that time in the ancient you know, near Middle East. A ruler had never served them before. He always abused them and used them and exploited them. But listen, Christianity uh, defies our categories. We don't have a category for a king who is a shepherd. We just don't. We don't. But thank God Jesus does. He, he broke the mold, didn't he? That song that we were singing earlier that we didn't have the lyrics to, thank you for trying though, John. That was my request, by the way. Did you hear those lyrics? How many kings step down from their thrones? How many lords have abandoned their homes? How many greats... No, I'm not going to sing it. <laughs> How many greats have become the least of these? How many gods have poured out their hearts to romance a world that is torn all apart? How many fathers gave up their sons for me? Only one did that for me. Isn't that amazing? And yet, and yet, we see, we sing this song every Christmas. I was telling our, our community group the other night, our home group that meets in our home, Isaac Watts has some of the greatest and richest theology. And there are shopping malls all across America right now that this song is being blasted. 
I mean blasted meaning. You'll hear it in the speakers. And this is the gospel. I love that. Christmas is the only time of the year that you're going to hear the gospel in secular radio stations and in secular shopping places. But check this out. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. Do you know those lyrics were in here? It is. It's a joyful thing. Listen, that's why they're celebrating. These magi came to celebrate. They're like, well, there's a new king born. Bummer. No, this is not a bird at all. This is a blessing. Celebrate joy to the whole world. This king has come. He's a global king. From the very get-go, we know that Gentiles can seek him and find refuge and forgiveness and freedom and pardon. Why in the world would you not want a king like that? I mean, when you th- I'm serious, guys. When you think about the objections that people make to Christianity, it's mind-blowing. It shows you the, big, the greatest proof I've ever seen in my life that Satan really does blind the minds of unbelievers to the glory of Christ is when you sit down with people and you talk about the claims that Jesus has made on their life and who he actually is and the promises he made. I mean, who in their right mind would reject a king who came to lay down his life for them, to give them true freedom, to give them true joy, to give them true satisfaction, to take the shackles off their ankles and their wrists? Who in their right mind would reject that? Only somebody who's just been blinded by sin and by Satan and wants to hold on, you know, wants to to dig deep and stay on the throne of their own life and see it just a wreck. This king conquered death. I mean, if, if, if Christianity doesn't have any good news to offer me when I'm on my deathbed and my body is racked with cancer, then it's bunk. No thank you. But listen, guys, this king, he's on a throne. But you know what else he did? He conquered death. This king came to conquer death. And we're, we share in his victory. The Bible says that we, in Ephesians chapter 1 and chapter 2, It says that we are blessed in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We reign with him. What king lets you sit up in his lap and reign? I know that's a crazy picture, but that's the image that Christianity gives. He's the father, we're his children. He's the king, we're his subjects. He gives us a good name. He frees us. He forgives us. Man, that's good news. This king came to set us free. He came to be our shepherd. When you compare Jesus, you go ahead and do that. Compare Jesus. And I know I'm preaching to the choir. Compare Jesus to every other religious figure in the world. Go on and do it. Be honest. Be intellectually honest. Okay? Because I've taken a world religions class or two, and I've compared him to all the others. I mean, Islam, for instance. Not trying to be, you know, controversial, but, um, you know, conversion, it's, it's, it's by force. It's by fear. It's by guilt. And then you get called to jihad. Jesus is not that kind of king. I was looking at Buddha. The last, did you know the last recorded words of, uh, of Muhammad? I'm sorry, I'm getting mixed up here. No, it's Buddha. The last recorded words of Buddha, you know what it was? Strive without ceasing. Did you know that? To his disciples, he said, strive without ceasing. You know what the final words of King Jesus were? It's finished. I think I'll take that. <laughs> I think I'll take that. You know, hey, good news. Uh, congratulations, you know, do your best and try your hardest. And when you get to the end, eh, maybe it's enough, we'll see. You know, have fun, enjoy yourself, you're free. No, Jesus said, it's finished, it's paid in full. You're mine, I'm yours. I pledge myself eternally to you. That's the best news a person could ever hear in the world. And only Christianity can get it 
based on the, the claims and the finished work of Jesus Christ. This king came to set you free. He's the king you've been searching for your entire life, but you're never going to find apart from the gospel. You know, this king was born in a manger, but listen, listen, he didn't stay in that manger. He grew up, and then he went to a wooden cross. He went outside the gates of Jerusalem, and he hung out there to free us from the tyranny of Satan and from the blindness and the enslavement of sin. That's, that's the great depths that this king went to to free us. Why? So that all the Herods of the world, the hungry, psychotic rulers, they could find freedom and forgiveness too. And some did. Not Herod, not to our knowledge. It's interesting to me, the, you know, the people that you see in this story, the scribes and the Pharisees, they had all this knowledge. They had all these prophecies. They had all these passages memorized in the Bible. And yet they had no interest in seeking out Jesus. And you look at the Magi, what did they have? Hardly anything. They had a supernatural revelation in the skies, a star and, and some prophecies bouncing around. And they followed it and they found Christ. Or rather, he found them, right? You know, Romans says, the word is not far from you. The word is in your mouth. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that he's king. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And the Bible says you will be saved. What good news is that? You don't have to do something crazy like, you know, climb Mount Everest or go fulfill this bucket list or get called to a jihad or bring back the broomstick of the wicked witch of the West. You don't have to do any of that. You know what you have to do? Believe. Look to Jesus. He's your king who was your shepherd and who can truly free you and forgive you and fulfill you. That's Advent. That's the good news of Christmas. The arrival of someone notable who happens to be the king we've been looking for our entire life. Let's pray.